Hello, and welcome to Growing the Top Line, a podcast where I interview leading executives and CEOs to get their perspectives on growth strategy. My name is Cliff Farah, President and CEO of The Beacon Group, a growth strategy consulting firm. Join us as we dig deeper into the process of, well, growing the top line. Okay. All right. Well, Pat, thanks for making time to talk today. It's great to see you. Um, Good to see you, Cliff. Yeah, thanks. Um, I was hoping, Pat, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. We've had a chance to work together quite a bit. Um, I was hoping you might share some of your career and who you are and what you do, uh, just for context for uh, uh, folks who might be watching this. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm Pat Burns. I'm Chief Operating Officer of Gibraltar Industries. Uh, My career has been spent in industrials, um, DuPont, Danaher, Johns Controls, uh, Trex, Dover. And uh, through that, I've learned quite a bit about big companies, smaller, more entrepreneurial companies, good markets, challenged markets. So I've got a good, good cross-section of experiences. And, and, and humility, too. You've, you've, <laughs> you've accomplished quite a bit. So what I want to do today, Pat, is just have a chance to talk with you and, and capture how you think about growth. You're one of the most successful growth strategists that I know. And, and I think we would all, yeah, I think you bet. I mean, well learned. I think we'd all benefit from hearing a little bit about how, how you think about things. Um, so one of the areas I think there's a, an incredible amount of importance in any kind of growth exercise is in setting the goals, right? Like how do you know what you're going to ask a business to do or a team to do? What's your, what's your process on that? How important do you think it is first? And then what's your, what's your process? Right. So we have a, a very comprehensive strategy development guide for our business unit leaders. You, you've heard me talk about it. You've seen it. You know, it's about a hundred page PowerPoint deck. Um, we break the strategy process down into seven steps. The very first step is set your objective. Yeah. And, and that could be a five-year objective, 10-year objective. It may or may not align with a three-year strat plan, but you have to be shooting for something. And it's got to be above and beyond market growth. It, so you, you, you stretch your team in all 16 dimensions you lay out. Yeah. So, okay. So let's dig on that a little bit. So you ask for above market growth goals. You're never, you're never shooting for the norm. You're never like being humble. You're, you're going for, you're going for above market. Okay. Um, when does it become unreasonable? Have you ever had like fire breathers who just want to set this crazy high goal for themselves and then they can't, you know, deliver? So we just, exactly. So we just finished our strap process this year. We, two weeks ago, reported out to our board and, you know, it went, went really well, really well, but getting there, uh, we actually had to iterate several times with some of our businesses and markets, knowing we couldn't hit that aspiration. Yeah. And it came down to our ability to execute. And really at the core, it comes down to, in just about every case, the team, the organization, organization design, and the talent you've got in the organization. That becomes the limiting factor. I totally believe that. I totally believe that. I um. I, I often say that if you give me a mediocre team with a with an easy objective or a great team with a lousy you know a difficult objective, uh, you know the, the the great team is going to win all the time, and the mediocre team just they just will they just won't get there. Um, 
So talk to me about though, uh, are there any particular kinds of goals you set? What, what are like your must haves in goal setting? Yeah, so um, they've gotta be breakthrough, right? It's gotta be something that is uh, sufficiently above market that it's gonna force the team to do things, not just one thing, but many things differently, whether it's innovation, geographic expansion, you know, acquisition to adjacent markets, They've got to have a, a beyond their current sandbox view. Okay. So it forces people into new, you've got to, the, the number has to force people to get into new areas and do things differently. Revenue number? Share revenue number? Yeah, rate? typically, yeah. So, so what I, yeah, specifically the metrics would be a revenue number. Yeah. And an operating margin number. Okay. And depending on where we're measuring in the organization, um, an ROIC number. Okay. So, okay, so that's, that's real. And then it, and then the goals that you set timelines as well, right? So, yes. so yep. do you ever, do you ever hockey stick goals or do you flatline them? I mean, what yeah. do, you, do you think about it? Yeah, really, I really believe in, you know, what I learned at Danaher from Larry Culp and how Danaher uses their policy deployment or X matrix, Hoshin Conry. Mm. And that three to five year goal, they break down. You want to be 50% of the way there year one. Interesting. That's, wh that's where you set your objective. And Interesting. As, as unreasonable as that sounds, it is really a smart thing to do because it forces the team to deal with the hard things first yeah. rather than push them off to the years three, four, and five, right? Yeah. You, yeah. you deal with the structural things first. Interesting. Okay. That's super helpful. Um, all right. Let's talk about the team. Let's talk about the team from the standpoint of uh, who's involved in the planning. Let's just let's talk about the planning exercise now. So, in your world, who does the planning? Who, who pulls in our the world? Yeah. So, so a, a truism is that general manager, that person, he or she's running the business. You can't delegate strategic responsibility. So that's the, the first person. Now, that person might not be doing all the legwork, but yeah. they've got to own that strategy and have touched it enough and help build it enough that, you know, they know it cold. Okay. Uh, from there, uh, almost the more the merrier, right? The quality of that strategy improves the deeper and broader you go into the organization in terms of people understanding what the objective is and what's got to be done to get there. So... So what's what's the craziest team member you've ever had like participate in developing a strategy? Is there has there ever been like an outlier? Like I can't believe I had this person on my team. Well, um, in a good way or bad way, which, you know, they're, they're outliers in both directions, right? Yeah. So the, the 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 one that's most frequent that that drives me nuts is the one that that mails in a market plan. Yeah. And it, it and the first thing that goes through my mind, you could probably read my mind here is. Why am I paying you a paycheck if we're just going to cruise along with the market? Right? Yeah, I'm yeah. paying you to make a difference. Yeah, and as harsh as that sounds, you know that's that's unfortunately probably average in industrial America, right? Yeah. Um, now the really good outliers are those that come with a an aspiration that is to grow the business. An order of magnitude. And those folks are somewhat rare and they generally tend to have to be coaxed, especially in a big public company. Yeah. Because they've been told 
you know, know so long and, and they haven't been able to get the, the organizational support. But it's, but it's those folks that you really want to kind of nurture and support. So what point in your career would Pat Burns tap you to be involved in developing a strategy? What level? Manager? VP? When do you think they have the chops to participate? You know, it's individual dependent. Cliff, this is, you've probably seen this. Yeah. Some people are kind of strategically tone deaf. Yeah. And <laughs> other people get it really early, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's not so much where in a career. There's certainly a lot of foundation that's got to be built and a lot of experience, right? So it's not a naive aspiration, but it's grounded in reality. Yeah. Um, you know, so so to, in, in general, you know, I'd, I'd like someone who is, uh, you know, say mid to mid thirties at the at the earliest, okay. right? Yeah. And and mm-hmm. ideally with a diversity of commercial experience. So maybe they've uh, been in sales, maybe they've been a product line manager, um, and, and maybe they've, uh, you know, been a, in, a, in a marketing role that is high touch, uh, you know, to the customer. And yeah. So you've got, you've got that market appreciation because very, very firm believer in market first. Okay. You start your strategy work, understanding the market. So. You know, you might have the brightest person in the world. They might have, you know, perfect aptitude, but if they've been buried in supply chain, you know, they, they won't have some of the necessary uh, background in the market that I want. Okay. What what functional – so, okay, so it sounds like sales, market-facing roles are the ones that lend themselves most naturally to development of strategy. And I think that's probably fair for most companies. And traditionally, if you look at someone in the role – yeah. Um, they will they will have had that background. One of my uh, beliefs is that engaging multiple functional areas, multiple functional leads is critical on your ability to plan a, an achievable strategy, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So so if if the leads are those folks, you know, you know, 30 plus years of experience in life, what functional leads would you ask? Like what are the ones you think are important ones to include? in the in the process well you know almost all of them right so okay. you think about it we we had an issue today we did our monthly uh, business review calls today and one of the businesses our ventilation business um is struggling to keep up with market demand yeah and they'll end up this year roughly flat in revenue versus last year and so what it tells me and, and below their plan yeah right so what it yeah. tells me is their ops and supply chain folks were not really, they did not really blow through that plan through operations, supply chain to really understand the implications of that. Yeah. So there, there's an example, right? Yep. yep. Um, you know, we were running, you know, uh, now um, HR is number one. Best practices, you go right from your strategy discussion into the org and, and talent review, right? Yep. Um, you know, you've obviously got, depending, it really depends on the business, right? If it's a marketing, lead gen heavy business, marketing's got to be front and center. Um, yep. But really all the key, you know, you don't want to drag your general counsel through, you know, months of strat plan, right? That's that's not necessary. Um, so it's 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 HR, it's would, ops, obviously, supply chain, marketing. You, when, do you engage, when do you engage legal? Legal is situational. Right. So 
if we've got a lot of IP, you know, they're they're in, you know they're in on the ground floor, right? Okay. If IP is key to the strategy, um, either proactively or defensively, I want general counsel to be aware of big market moves. If we have big acquisitions planned, yeah, yeah, so they can be aware of our intentions, both antitrust review as well as lining up third party support that we'll need for some of these deals, right? So it, it depends. Okay, fair. My experience, you know, I've been doing <laughs> almost 30 years now playing yeah. this game. And one of the, the biggest points of failure that I've seen in my career is when people are afraid to engage finance and legal, in particular, those two functional areas, and they become veto functions, right? Like you do yeah, all the yeah. stuff to create something yeah. and then, you know, you pitch them and they're like, nope, too risky. And so from a process standpoint, I, I like to engage them at key milestones throughout so they can review, raise objection, and then you have time to kind of address that. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Now, I guess one thing I, I want to reference, now finance, in a, in a multi-industrial model, the key thought partner ought to be that finance thing in a business for a general manager. Yeah. So basically, if, if that person, if that function is fulfilling its full role, Right, not just accounting, but strategic decision making. So, finance ought to be in, you know, shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip with the general manager and marketing and development strategy. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right, let's shift gears for a sec. You talked about market driven strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so before you get into the market, and you know, you're 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 a savvy practitioner. You you know your strengths and weaknesses and capabilities as a creature, like your, your company. You do, you do, right? And I wonder if that's always true. Like self-awareness, the example you just raised where we couldn't meet our production schedule, so our sales are flat, not because of a demand-driven issue, but because of a, you know, an operational uh, execution challenge. Uh, certainly in the, in the COVID-driven world, supply chain is an issue for everyone, right? Right? So, so how much self-awareness do you think the team has to have um, as it goes through this planning process? Yeah, near perfect. Because you've seen it too many times as I, as I have. You can have a, a beautiful strategy that's just a PowerPoint. I always do that. Just yeah, yeah. But, but it's just a PowerPoint deck, right? You, you know, if, if you don't have a team that can bring that to life yeah. and put in an operating cadence to go execute, yeah. Um, you know, e even one function that isn't able to perform their needed uh, role can keep you from executing well. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, very, 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 really important to, to have people on the ground floor, but also really important to have a, a, a very thorough ground up view of the implications of that strategy through these key functions. Yeah, I agree. Do you draw a distinction between capability and resourcing at all? You, you know, like, hey, Pat, you're capable, but you want to do this inorganic growth thing. We don't have the resourcing for it, right? You're capable, but we can't. Uh, do you think there's, you know, is that a bucket of focus for you when you go through this exercise? It, it is. You know, we've got to think about the team's bandwidth, uh, you know, whether it's the ability to integrate or to manage a, a new product launch um, a, a new acquisition. And here's an example. Our solar business uh, did some very good market work strategy work that the to figure out the tracker segment in their market. Mm. Um, 
is a, is a great place to play. Yeah. And they did a great micro market uh, analysis and they figured out where the attractive niche to play would be where the big guys weren't. So it started with an organic strategy. Yeah. The concept was great. The design was was good. But we didn't have, and somewhere we missed, the internal engineering capability and design and process. So ah. we launched a product that wasn't ready for prime time. Got it. Didn't perform in the field. We had to do a lot of remediation. And it, it, it was just a huge black eye. Yeah, and, yeah. and that was a miss, right? We didn't have the, the product development, the engineering, the and, the, and really the, the process steps uh, put in place to make sure we had that design fully tested before we brought it to market. Got it. Now let's talk about the market. Let's let's go outside for a sec. What are the kinds yeah. of things you think about when you're wanting to be market aware? Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, you and I have talked about this. We have what we call a rubric, right? And it's about a dozen criteria for a market and about a, another dozen criteria for your ability to extract value lead in that market. Yep. And not rocket science, but simple things like the size of the market. You want it to be big enough that you can build a sizable business and have enough adjacencies to have growth runway for decades, right? So yeah. you don't want to put yourself in a, in a niche where you're dead-ended in three years. Um, you want it to have, this is really important, you want it to have significant secular trends, macro trends, mm -hmm. that will give you above GDP growth just by showing up. And so you, you want to be, it's, it's a heck of a lot easier for a team to grow and, and expand profitability in a growing market. When you're yeah. fighting volatility, cyclicality, headwinds, it is, it's, you know, it's just 10 times worse. So we look for markets where ideally everything is in the control of our team, right? The, the ex, you want to minimize the external factors on outcome. Okay. So you want to avoid volatility, you want to avoid cyclicality. Ideally, we, because again, knowing ourselves, being self-aware, we avoid markets with rapid technology cycles because mm -hmm. we're not good at that. Yep. Right. So we want to play in markets where technology cycles are long and we can see them coming and, and we can, you know, grind out our our one and a half market times market performance uh, without getting you know, blindsided. So th there are a number of attributes that we look at uh, market consolidation and structure. Yep. You know, a more consolidated market that has rational competition is a better place to play, right? You know, number of factors. When you think about voice of market or market awareness, how much focus do you put on the customer versus the competitor versus the regulatory environment or the broader economic environment? How do you, how do you how's your rubric layout on those? Again, ideally, now we, you know, there's always exceptions, right? You take these factors and then you weigh the pros and cons and risks. Uh, but one, you also want to avoid markets that are driven by regulation. Mm. Now, here we are in, you know, both marijuana and and renewable energy. And both yeah. of those are very much dependent <clears throat> upon regulation. Now, in, in both, um, you know, regulations in our favor, right? But they can cause uh, unpredictability in a market. Now, this has happened many times with solar over the past couple of decades. I've seen the solar market boom and crash three times in my career. Yeah, and and, and we're we're going through another uh, you know cycle up because of investment tax credit uh, issue. So you, you you want to avoid uncertainty. 
And, and like, that's what we're being hit with in the marijuana market right now. The uncertainty around, uh, around you know, uh, financing is causing capital dry up in a growing market. Yeah. So there's going to be a, a whiplash coming our way once that gets sorted out. But so markets that are ideally naturally driven by economics mm-hmm. and consumer preference, right, is, like is, is, is where you want to play. Give me an example. You can look at uh, mobile phones. Okay. Right. They, they, they provide such a compelling value proposition that you don't need regulation to advance their adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you're getting, now, regulation is going to be necessary to expand wow. you know, accessibility to the Internet, things like that. But you know, the mobile phone is just so, so compelling. Okay, I understand. Now, now in terms of, of market versus competitor, you start with the market first and, and your, your consumers and how they segment and what drives each segment. You want to get really granular and then analyze your competition in each segment. What game is being played, how do customers make their decision so you know you specifically how you need to compete and win. And then you can assess your competitor on a much more appropriately granular level. Hmm. You know, knowing your competitor on a, on a competitive basis is always helpful, but that's almost irrelevant until you know exactly how well suited they are or are not to compete in a specific segment. Got it. So, all right. So let's take a step back now. So you've gone out, you know your goal, mm-hmm. right? You know the yep. team taking to the fight. You know the resourcing they have. Uh, you know the market landscape. You know the competitors you're up against within the markets. What's what's your process at this point? You know, you got these mounds of data, massive amounts of data. How do you, as as a successful growth strategist, structure that? How do you how do you formulate your strategy from all that information? Mm-hmm. So you you just hit of our seven steps. You hit the first four. Okay. Right? You set your aspiration. You uh, you define your market. You segment your market. You assess the competition. You determine. You know how the what game is played in each market segment and how you win. Yeah, you cycle through that until you get clarity, and you've ideally found ways—not just one, not one hail mary way, but ways to hit your objective. Yeah, and you then assess its probabilities. Right now, you have to put your resources against the right segment. So. You, you may have may segment your market into twelve segments, and there are, you know, five things to do in each segment. You, you just don't have the bandwidth to light everything up, right? So you've got right. to focus, right? And, and so you keep cycling until you, you get you match your resources with your aspiration. Do do you um, can you recall in your career? And you, you know, like I say, you've you've fought the fight at a lot of places. Um, can you recall in your career uh, a, a particular? instance or two when you've said no to to growth like just bad growth like things you've walked away from <laughs> that, that you thought were just bad bets to make sure um so i'll give you some very specific examples one is strategic at dupont when i started dupont first six weeks were secluded with a team to determine dupont's uh, uh biotech strategy Okay. And and I was in the corporate strategy role because I was the new person. I was said, you, you go lead this group. <laughs> and I was given a budget 
And we had, there was a competitive team, the CEO set up to develop a strategy from the base of the markets DuPont was participating in already. So the, so the life of me, I still can't understand why the CEO chose the, the ag strategy. But what we, uh, what we believed was you wanted to focus in on, on biotech, med biotech. Okay. You know, being other Amgen, Biogen, and all those assets we looked at were acquirable back then. And, and we, we, we said no. Now I was a I was a dissenting voice, and you know Dupont may be in a different position today if we'd taken that that other road, right? Yeah. Um, because you look at it, you just think the R and D you put in to develop a new bug to secrete a therapeutic protein. Yeah. You got to do the same work to develop a you know a Roundup ready corn stalk that you do a cure for cancer. Yeah. And then one you're going to sell, you know, one for $100,000 a gram, the other going to sell for 20, you know, cents a gram. Like yeah, why, yeah. why, why do all that work? Um, you've got the same, you know, R&D risk, the same FDA approval risk, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, all right. Now flip the anyway. coin. Tell me, yeah, tell yeah. me, tell me one that you feel like you nailed. Like you, you saw it, it was un, unexpected or nuanced and, and you nailed it. Early in my career, um, my first general management job, um, recognizing the opportunity to expand into a couple of adjacencies. We, uh, this is early in my career. I'm with a, with uh, uh, Owens Corning in their composites division, and we're selling resins yeah. to both builders, anybody making anything out of fiberglass. But to get into the color concentrates and coatings, basically made of the molecules we were producing, we had a cost advantage, we had a chemistry advantage, we had a formulation advantage. And all we had to do was run them through our same sales force because we were selling, we had the, had the channels already set up. Sure, sure, sure. And that was just, that was just, you know, some of the easiest value to create in my career. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to match that gel code, isn't it? <laughs> it match. is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, if, and if you can, if you can provide it consistently to a boat builder, it is as sticky as heck. As as a sailor, I've scratched a lot of gel coat, so I, I know exactly how how hard that is. Um, all right, Pat. So let's start to bring it to to a close here. Like, what what have I missed? When you think about successful growth strategy development, what what haven't we included from your process or from your rubric? What what do you think is important to keep in mind? Yeah, uh, a, a couple of things. Of the seven steps, strategy execution is an important one. Hmm. And how you begin to uh, have the process, and Danaher does this exceptionally well. Yeah. That's where they roll into policy deployment. They pick of that strategy, of that business's situation, the three to five most critical things they've got to get done. Not necessarily for that year, but for you know to, to drive the transformation of the strategy. So you run it through policy deployment matrix that Hoshin Conry, and you you nail it down to who's going to lead this initiative. What are the KPIs? Who's going to be on the team? And, and you, literally, you boil it down an action plan. So you are executing almost before uh, you know the, the calendar year starts. Yep, that is critical. I think it's also critical to go through a, a risks and mitigation step. To step back, you know, don't drink you know the wine, and very sober, take a very sober look at that. That strategy. What can go wrong? If something's going to go wrong, and, and so where are the weaknesses? Where are the vulnerabilities? And so you're prepared with a contingency when when that 
something happens. It might be a competitive activity, a regulatory activity. So you don't just, your strategy is blown, you know, in, in the first year because, well, something changed. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, all right. So we may or may not use this, Pat, but let me show you what we, uh, I, I, I asked you to give me some answers uh, to, to questions, right? I asked you four questions. And um, do, you, do you remember what those answers were that you gave me? I they, said, yes. It, it I ranged from 90% to, to 60%. There were ranges. So, so I asked you, Pat, I asked you four questions. I said, mm -hmm. Pat, tell me, how, what, per, what percentage of your revenues do you think should come from existing cu customers? And we averaged it out for you, right? Mm -hmm. it was, yeah. We came out to like 82 and a half versus 17 and a half uh, okay. for existing customers. Then we said, what about geographies? New geography, mm -hmm. existing geography. You said about 90-10 is going to come, you know, 90% through existing geography, 10% new geography. Uh -huh. um, I asked about new offerings. Are you gonna? Are you just gonna work the portfolio that you have, uh, or are you gonna introduce new products and capabilities into the market? You told me it's about seventy-five percent existing, twenty-five percent new. I said, okay. Then what about a disruptive business model? Uh, how, how much are you gonna sell the way you always have, and what percentage are you, are you gonna sell um, in a new way, as a service, consumption-based, risk-based, whatever, whatever it may be? You said about seventy-thirty. So what we did is we we took we took those values. And we applied them to the model. And as, as you know, one of the one of the challenges you have as a growth strategist is to know, to honestly feel confident that you've thought through everything, right? That there's literally nothing else to think about, right? There's no other way I can grow. And that's one of the useful things about this tool. What the tool says is that out of 16 ways you could grow, um, you know, there there are 82% of revenues and, and profit and re resulting profit should come through uh, six pathways. So if there were going to be if there were going to be areas you focused on, we think classic new account addition is important for you. Uh, being transformative with existing customers using a new model, uh, growing the portfolio you're offering to existing customers. Uh, and then uh, really trying to grab uh, share by not only introducing something new, but allowing people to acquire it in a new way it is going to be critical to your success, as is the classic milking the cow, right? Doing everything you're doing today, don't, don't change a thing. We think there are five things you would just stay away from. Don't try to be a disruptor in the market, right? Don't mm -hmm. absorb pure innovation. Don't absorb going after new geographies. Don't absorb going after totally transformative business models in, in ways that, that don't make sense for you. We do, we do think there's uh, opportunity for you, although it's middling opportunity. So, so you can either focus on, you know, the 82% or you can focus on the 15%. And the, what we did with the 15% is we just cut you at 5%. Anything under 5% revenue, we just said is a, it's, a, it's a middle ground state. Yeah, maybe you focus on it, maybe you don't. Take a look at evolutionary or longer, longer term growth. I don't know if this is aligns with your thinking, but it's meant to be a tool for a new practitioner to frame their thought, right? As they as they consider growth. So I'm going to send you this. This is my gift to you for making time today uh, to uh, to do this. And um, I don't know, Pat. I I tell you what. I I have always felt uh, lucky to get a chance to work with you, and you've always stretched my thinking. So as a as a growth as a growth strategist, you're you're right up there, man. And I I can't wait to uh, hopefully share this with uh, with the world. Well, thanks. Thanks. I, I appreciate you, you having me. And, and uh, you know, looking over that, that matrix, um, 
you know, that, that made a lot of sense, actually. It was good. It's good sanity check, right? I obviously was thinking on a business by business, what's our plan? And I kind of backed the envelope in my head coming up to the numbers I gave you. What you just ran through is a good sanity check. Right? Good. It, good. It, does that make sense? It, it, to me, it matters. Yep. yep. You bet. All right, Pat. Hey, thanks again. And I'm going to stop recording now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Growing the Top Line. For more information about growth strategies and to learn about our firm, please go to beacongroupconsulting.com. That's B-E-A-C-O-N-G-R-O-U-P consulting.com. And if you're interested in the book Growing the Top Line, it's available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble.